Hey guys, and welcome back. Happy Sunday. Good morning. This is the Casual Word and Casual Word Radio, where we continue our endeavor to change the world one word at a time. I'm your host, Langley, and we've got a very special broadcast for you guys today, something that the gentleman and I have been planning for some time. Yeah. We won't do it in person, uh, but we we just, the COVID hit and, and several things have made that not as feasible as we had once planned, uh, but just a philosopher, uh, a family man, a uh, brilliant mind, you know, got a lot of things in common. I think you guys are going to be really, really in for a treat. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself. All right. How you doing, guys? Uh, this is Shahir Henderson um, with the uh, Purple Pill Perspective. I also got uh, relationship stuff one-on-one uh, and a couple of other endeavors that I do. Um, yeah, I've known Langley for a long time. So, yes, like you said, this is definitely going to be an adventure and a conversation that has been festering for a long time, I would say. And it's finally time to get it on out there. Um, two, this is also going to be like a double interview. So I'm going to go ahead and say to, to my audience, I would like to welcome you guys to Relationship Stuff 101 podcast here on this July 18th, Sunday, 2021. I am your host, Shahir Henderson, who I have joining with me today is a musician, a philosopher, a writer, uh, extraordinaire, uh, pioneer, uh, minister. I, when the list the list goes on and on. I mean, poet. I mean, I, I, I can't <laughs> if I sat here for another minute, I'll probably be naming three or four other things. Uh, language shades are the casual words, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, oh, man. this is definitely going to be this is definitely going to be a treat today. I mean, yeah, I, I'm absolutely. looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. And like, as I hear said, this is this is something unique that he and I have been conceptualizing for some time to do a a double interview. So yeah. uh, I think both of what you'll see is unique interview styles and in our conversation, uh, along with having a chance to connect with both audiences. Uh, I, I yeah. was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we likened it to a Venn diagram where you've got your your collection and I've got my collection, and you've got where we overlap. And I think it's going to be a yeah. unique experience to maybe hopefully have uh, other viewers and listeners not only come to each other's podcast and, and some of the things that we're doing, but hopefully connect yeah. with each other as well. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely that's definitely the plan. See, the, initially what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring uh, Langley here to Nashville and I wanted to have the, the interview outside the Palladium. Now, for you guys who may not know, the Palladium is a place, it's like a, it's a museum, it's filled with artwork, and different things of that nature. And then Langley is heavy into the art. So I wanted that to be our setting for the background. So that would have been a perfect setting for someone that is into art, that's in the photograph, uh, photographing different things of that nature. So yeah, that, that definitely would have been something to set up. But here we are, we got, I mean, your background is definitely something that's the same setting for you. Um, typewriters uh, is a thing. A lot of people say, hey, typewriters are the yesterday. But what I saw from you, I saw in an interview that you did on a uh, news channel, you know, you brought it to where you used to actually have people in a classroom teaching them and reintroducing them to the typewriter. And I thought that was amazing. I appreciate that. You know, that was something that what I found when I got into typewriters was the increased level of creativity. And that's because there was no distraction. You know, what what I began to discover was that I was able to more clearly 
hone and define my voice because I wasn't being distracted by the things of our digital world. You know, there, there weren't notifications, there wasn't internet. Uh, and also the typewriters are unforgiving. And in that regard, I mean that, you know, uh, backspace traditionally was going back a character. Now we, on a computer, we say backspace, but it's technically delete. Uh, and you don't have that option with a typewriter. You can go back and overwrite, uh, but it makes you slow down and be very deliberate about what you want to say and how you want to say it because you don't have that delete option. You know, I think that we are in a world now with all the great things that technology gives us uh, where you can be lazy about how you draft uh, because you are and, and, and copy and paste and shift things around. So you can just um uh, really just blurt out whatever you want knowing that you can just go in and just oh i'll fix it later um the thing about the typewriter was you i don't like to have to start over i think many of us are like that and right. so with the typewriter it was like i want to make sure i get it as close to correct the first time so i don't have to go back and rewrite it uh and also it helped my creative process because we education and you know i used to teach at, at a middle school uh, and i yeah. volunteered in educational platforms what i discovered was we are both educating creativity out of our children but we're also teaching them to try and um do their revisions and their corrections while they're still trying to get their ideas out and what the typewriter allowed me to do in my creative process was it, it gave me the purest form of my thoughts because it was that first draft. And I feel like that first draft, if you can get all that out, is what exactly what your mind wanted to put down the paper, exactly the way you envisioned it, exactly the way you wanted to say it. Uh, and I think that when we start that revision process, we start to censor ourselves and change the message and change the context. And, and you end up with something that wasn't as pure as it was when it first came out. Uh, and so people ask me about my writing process and they say that, you know, I don't, I don't ever edit or rewrite. If I write a piece of poetry and I don't like it, I, it gets tossed and I move on to the next, the next concept. Uh, if I right. read that concept later on, you know, and write a different piece, then so be it. But um, whatever I write, like it or not, is exactly what I was meant to write in that moment. Understood. Um, okay, because with with the typewriter, a lot of people don't understand. I mean, I, when I was in high school, ninth grade, they taught typing. They didn't type. They didn't teach computer because computers were not prominent yet. They taught typing and a lot of people they found it frustrating you know when you hit the keys and then the, the things that get stuck up in that position anybody who used the typewriter knows what i'm talking about so yeah. <laughs> and that, this... that becomes very frustrating if you're using the typewriter and that happens to you so in the process of using creativity and in the pro in that, in that process of ha you have to have patience i'm pretty sure you have to also make sure that that typewriter is built to to withstand the process in which you're taking it through, correct? Correct, correct. Uh, and, and the thing, we, we talk about planned obsolescence and, and that's the thing from a manufacturing and technical side that I really value about typewriters versus computers. Uh, you know, we, we live in a consumer capitalist uh, institution and society where, you know, they're gonna force you to continue to buy their product and continue to upgrade and continue to 
you know, and I do that by having machines that aren't built to last versus a typewriter where, you know, I've got typewriters from the 1800s that I can pull out of a case right now and write on them. And so wow. the, the idea behind quality was different then. You know, you they built machines to make sure you could write on them forever. Uh, right. And, and so I think that I also have that that not that nostalgic um affinity for the machines because i know that at any given point i can get a machine out and it's going to work right exactly okay so on the on the subject of typewriters and on the subject of you falling in love with typing in that manner let's go back a little bit take me back to your childhood virginia bristol virginia excuse me for a minute your childhood bristol virginia um the upbringing take take me back there take me from the beginning uh just do a little blue breakdown yeah so you know uh you know raised in bristol from california originally raised in bristol um i think both i've talked with a lady named rona i've done some of her her podcasts as a guest and talked about that where you're born though you may not be exposed to the culture uh at length I think there is something endemic genetically about where where you're born, and I think that there's something right. imprints on you from there from the beginning. So even even though I didn't spend a lot of my childhood in California, it was very evident that there was something different about me even when I was growing up here. And you know, walked to the beat of my own drum, kind of thing, did whatever I wanted to do. I was pretty much. Uh, a rebel, um, very recalcitrant, you know, defiance, <laughs> that whole nine yards, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do, right. or, you know, and so I think that's where the the desire to strike out on my own, um, not realizing that's okay. what it was, of course, I think that's where that started, uh, because I hated being told what to do. I, I think that came from my father. He was a Marine and that's, you know, he kind of went to the service to test himself and he had a okay. the same type of mentality, like I can do it, you know, I can do it. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, but if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to show you. And I think that was very much part of my upbringing. Um, and, and athletics uh, played a huge part into growing up. Um, you know, the desire to be the best, the desire to be the greatest uh, was part of the athletic prowess that I was blessed with. Uh, but you had to train, right? And you had to put the extra, right. you know, you're an athlete and uh, a martial artist as well. So you know that there's strength yeah. behind all that. You know, you yeah. have talent, but if you don't if you don't cultivate the talent, you, you don't really go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then just kind of growing up, man, it just, you know, a lot of life, a lot of life happened. I made a lot of poor choices. You know, I was one of those guys that had a very classic uh, and, and a very stable upbringing. You know, um, middle-class family, both parents work, both parents in the home. Um, and, you know, we didn't have everything we wanted, but we definitely had everything we needed. Uh, and we didn't really ever lack. Uh, but, you know, I was telling some friends, and I think you've heard me say about the identity crisis that I went through for a long time, because as growing yeah. up, I was... I'm just going to say say it the way it is because we can be transparent and I think it's important that we talk about these things just as men as you and I have discussed. Yeah. I, I was too smart and the way I carried myself was not um, welcome in the black community with my black friend, but I was still black. So I didn't have the same type of camaraderie with the Caucasian demographic. I, all, my, all my classmates were, were white because, you know, they had the 
the things that we see so so economically, right? I mean, they had the, the stable parents, they had the money, they were having the, the extra courses, so they were very intelligent. Uh, and so all my classmates were were called, and I had the same classmates almost all the way through high school, um, from third grade almost till I, till I got into maybe my junior year of high school. It was like the same thirteen of us in every class. Uh, and it was interesting because I didn't, because of my identity crisis, I never built the friendships that you would think going through that much school together um, should develop. You know, okay. so I had the respect of all my classmates, but I didn't have any friendships. Uh, and so there was always an air of independence my entire life. And I think that's where a lot of that began to develop unbeknownst to me into the person that would become today. Oh, okay. So you, we got we got determination, sports, um, ad, uh, I mean, admiration, desire, and diversity. Mm-hmm. All of these things can play into the man that you become today, Absolutely. because you have a you have you have all of these five elements, strong elements that are driving you that are driving force in your life. How did how did all of that go into the church? Well, we we now we're bringing all of this into the church. Were you were you introduced to the church early, or did you walk in yourself? I, I was introduced early. You know, I think that uh, I was having an interview with Reverend Reed and some of my in my my pastor series, and we talk about how the one of the staples and one of the foundational elements to the black community, growing, you know, coming through the ages, was the church as a culture uh right and the body of christ and that camaraderie but then also having a safe space physically for us to gather Uh, and so that was you know growing up that was something that was a staple in my entire family from my immediate household to my aunt's home to my grandmother you know that was a staple of, of our of our family unit so yeah i was introduced to church very early uh and then i think as most of us do you get into your adolescent years uh young adult years when you can start making your own decisions and it was like nah i'm good i don't i don't want this anymore um i always felt that there was a calling but i also had the wrong perception of what my life would be with it uh and I think that goes back to the traditional way that we have always viewed and in some cases perpetuated how churches to function and i saw you know leaders in church who appeared of course on the outside in church to have it all together and then I saw real life situations and then I saw the the struggle and I saw the sacrifice and I saw all these things that to me didn't equate to a life that I wanted if I was going to follow Christ and so I I I ran literally I I ran away as far as I could not only physically but spiritually I always prayed but I didn't want to have anything more to do with God than just being able to pray and talk to him okay and and it wasn't till it wasn't till 2000 and 2013 is when I met the late Pastor Starkey and a friend of mine you know Sham uh, yeah yeah, so Sham kept telling me, uh, and you know, he's a powerful, powerful speaker. And he kept telling me, man, I got a friend that I want you to meet. I got a pastor I want you to meet. And I was like, eh, mm, you know, uh, I'll get around to it kind of thing. And I don't know, the spirit just, just moved me one day. And so I walked into the church and 
the first person I see is the late the, uh, Theo McMillan, and she was the pastor of another church, and she and I had become close during my transitional period. Um, I was having dreams and visions and nightmares, and so I was talking to her about the things that I was seeing and trying to make sense of it. And so she and I became very close. And so when I walked in, I realized that I was in the right place because she was there. And then I met uh, Pastor Starkey and, you know, we were the same age. And so we had a unique opportunity of growing as friends, growing as brothers in Christ, him being my my pastor, but also as someone going into a, a leadership role under him, we grew together as leaders because this was his his first pastoral role was coming to kingdom life um or i'm sorry king's chapel kingdom life was was theo's uh miss uh theo mcmillan's church um but yeah coming to king's chapel was his first role as pastor and so we grew together as multiple on multiple levels and and that was when i really started to, to think okay there was something more to to this life and it, it took me meeting someone who was young um and similar minded to realize that you can have a high quality of life following christ um and not have to have this piety equates to poverty mentality right uh, because that was something that i i didn't want i didn't want any part of the you know running around in a sackcloth always miserable because you're following Christ. That's, that's what I had seen. And that's not yeah. what I wanted. Uh, and so that's why I didn't have any interest. And it wasn't until I obviously got older and started to study for myself as well as get under quality leadership that I realized, you know, Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. David was wealthy. And so there's, there's an, uh, and actually I want to segue real quick because we're going to have this discussion on the Broken Church podcast with some people coming up, guys. So just be on the lookout for that because we're talking about the poverty versus the prosperity gospel mentality. And, you know, we I didn't I didn't know that there was a way to have a high quality of life and have a high quality connection to Christ. And so as I began to mature, that's where you, this is the person you see now has become to develop uh, and then being blessed with being having more people uh, at the leadership level that I can talk to very candidly uh, and that help help reassure that you can still do all the things that you enjoy doing and yeah. still, excuse me, still be a leader, still represent Christ in your conduct, but still be a person. Right. You know, and it, it, that's where the ministry starts to come in and, and realizing that all the things that I was doing was a form of ministry, uh, you know, and even though it may not be spiritual, it appears secular on the outside. The ministry was still giving back and encouraging and uplifting my community and helping promote creativity and helping our youth. So it didn't come off as, you know, spirit led uh, from a more professional manner, but it was still, okay. and so when I, when I began to have that, that, that revelation and those epiphanies, everything started to, to become clearer on my mission and my path. Okay. So it's basically what you, what I'm, what I'm understanding. And I want to touch back on everything you just said. And I want to go back to the dreams, the visions and the nightmares. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's speak a minute for the visions. So what were know, some of the visions? The, the visions, one of the most 
uh, memorable and pronounced was a, a vision that I'd had where I was I was on a train. Um, and I all watch a lot of anime, so you guys may not understand these references, but just kind of just bear with me. I was on a train and I was there's a, a cartoon, Blood uh, Blood the Last Vampire, where she's a vampire hunting vampires. Okay, not something that we're unfamiliar with, but the cartoon was unique because there was a train scene. And so I was in this train and it was the the the, the killers were only attacking their identical twins is what it looked like. But mm. it, it was a different, it was the spiritual version of themselves that I began to understand later on. So I was watching these people, you know, kill themselves. And as we're, we're coming through the train, uh, it was it was Jim Carrey who was dry, who was conducting the train. <laughs> but look, but think, but think about the, the initials, JC, Jesus right. Christ. Right, and so wow. he was speaking in he was speaking in riddles. Yes, right. Okay, he was he was speaking in riddles, and so when I exit the train, there are two people that I I'm watching move through. You know, if you guys have been in the subway, you know those are like uh, there are doors that lead out off the subway tunnels, and so I followed them, and the 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 number of the door was five, which is Grace, and so we go through the fifth we go through the fifth door there, and you know some kind of creature that was both it was it was vapor but it was also physical in terms of it could envelop you right and so it grabbed these two kids and grabbed myself and everything goes black so then i wake up and i'm i'm in a room like an interrogation room okay you got the light swinging right it's just that singular light it's swinging yeah. so you can only see so much as it goes back and forth yeah. i'm back to back with someone that i can't i can't see but I look up and the detective is actually like a demonic type of creature. And he's sitting up in the corner of the room on the ceiling. And he looks at me and he was like, who's this man sent from God? And then like the light pans away and it's black. And then when it pans back, he's right here in my face. And he was like, wow. who that man sent from God? And then I woke up. Wow. And so that was one of those those moments. And what I realized was that it was, as we talk about the flesh and the spirit man, it was the flesh man um, that was killing the spirit man. That's what I was seeing on the train. The train was the people trying to follow Christ because he was conducting the train. So they're trying to get on their path. And it was the flesh man, their other person that was, that was attacking and killing them before he could get to the destination. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus was speaking in, in riddles about, you know, are you going to stay with me? Are you going to stay on the train? Are you getting off the train? Um, and, and again, you know, five being grace, which is not only the dispensation that we're under. Dispensation is simply when God deals with man at a particular time in history. Um, we're under grace because, you know, Christ has already died for us. So we're living in a graceful period where we have the opportunity to repent and get back on the train. Um, okay. And, and then, of course, you know, the, the enemy was trying to figure out who I was because I didn't know the power. I didn't know the authority. I didn't know what my calling was. And so the enemy had captured me to interrogate me to figure out who I was and why I was so important. Um, and that was a pivotal moment where I realized that there was a greater calling after uh, Elder McMillan and I spoke that I realized there was a greater calling. 
um, okay. on my life than even what I had considered to be, you know, the, the calling that I that I thought I was going into in terms of just helping people and giving back, that it was even greater than that. Okay, so you, you reawakened anew from this vision. Mm -hmm. How did this vision that seems to have changed the thought process, where does these nightmares come from? Do they come from the battle still that you had to be the old you compared to the new you? Where, was, where did the nightmares come in? It was both. So as I was trying to accept, and, and I say trying because like you were just illustrating, it, it's the old me versus the new me. And so okay. I was trying to accept the path that I was being shown I needed to walk. But because of that, and I think you and I talked about this, because of that, I became a target, right? So we talk about when uh, when you just decide to follow Christ or, or you decide to get onto your path of enlightenment, that the enemy, right, recognizes you as a threat because you are walking away from the world. Right. So as I'm trying to make this transition, the enemy is trying to keep that transition from happening. So my nightmares were both in, internal struggle, but also the spiritual battle between the enemy trying to keep me from accepting that role and moving into that. Battle. Okay, I understand. So, so the nightmares, the visions. Now, what built up the dream? Now, when, when I say dream, guys, the dream, we all know we go to sleep, we have a dream. But I believe what you were talking about was the dream that you had to become what you are now, or was this dream something different than when you had that dream? The dream was different. Um, and I think okay. the, dream, the dream was different because I still had a vision of what I wanted for myself. Okay. And, and so the dream was still the corner office, right? On the top floor, the super executive, you know, the, the, you know, the six to seven figure money maker, you know, doing great things. And that was a vision I had for myself. Um, and so I, I think that the dream, the dream didn't change until I got close to that reality and realized I didn't want it. Understood. So we talked, we, okay, we're talking about the dream, photographs, weightlifting, even, even having your own weightlifting channel, by the way, guys. And uh, I'm, uh, send me a link to that so I can put that in the uh, description yes, of sir. this video for you guys. Um, art, being an author, all of this stuff was chasing that financial state, how you want to say it, that financial stability you just mentioned corner office top building well, was all of this stuff put together to chase that or were all of these just different things in your spare time that you did actually none of it i took serious and none of it i was really after except for maybe the okay. the, the, the fitness portion of it because i I, just, oh, okay. I i wanted to stay fit and i wanted to help other people stay fit and and that so that that was happening while i was working in in corporate america but the rest oh, okay. of it, the rest of it didn't really begin to take shape until um, I was forced out of that role. Uh, and I, I, I say forced because of the way it happened, but I will say that it was not. It was both God closing that door because He realized I wouldn't leave the money, and 
me being the person that I am, right? Walked to the beat of my own drum. So I was, I was very resolved in my stance on certain things. And because I didn't go along with the program, that created a lot of issue between myself and my superiors uh, in the roles that I was in at that time. Uh, so it was it was a combination of things that led to me leaving that that portion of my life and then making a promise to myself that I would never work in that type of environment again or to make someone else wealthy. Uh, and so it was at the end of my career that I started to consider the opportunity for entrepreneurship and not really realizing what that looked like, but just knowing that I wanted to do something on my own. Uh, if I was going to work myself to death, quote unquote, that it was going to be for my benefit and for the benefit of those that I wanted to see help. Uh, so okay. it was one of those things where I had to have that that transitional point where I, I moved out of something into something else before I started to really let all that shape. Understood. So now we, we get into psychology and yeah. the children. All right. So we get the, when we get to psychology and the children, did going to the children and starting to educate and starting to inspire and motivate them, was that you some way reliving your childhood through them by curiously or was that just something you say hey I got a message and I want to help the youth with what I believe they need to hear compared to what is being uh, put out there in the universe it, I think it was recognizing a need okay um, because my, my parents certainly advocated creativity you know, we played the band, we did performing arts, we, you know, I was in choir. Uh, so, you know, that was always very much part of my childhood and, and, and having parents that definitely supported any endeavors that myself and my siblings went into. Um, but it was recognizing a need before I realized exactly what the need was that, you know, our kids needed positive role models and our youth needed people that they could come to that weren't so far removed from the culture that the advice wasn't relevant. Okay, I understand. I understand. So, okay, so we got psychology. We have the children. Now, the career path that you that you chose with the school that basically was complicated against not complicated but conflicting against the initial plan. So, all of these plans came together to build up. What, what, what was the plan to build up with all of these different ventures? That, I think that was my like the question I was trying to go to for, for first. All of these different ventures that you dug into, what's the initial plan for having that combined, um, at those combined assets? Uh, it, it was it was taking the it was taking the skills that I that I had, okay. and it was the passion for things that I was into and then the opportunity, you know, and, and we talk about that a lot that you're, um, people talk about purpose. And I think your purpose is an equation where you take your gifts and talents and you multiply them by the passions and then add opportunity and that creates purpose. Right. And so I, I think that I feel confident that this, this transition into all the endeavors was that exact equation was that God okay. gave me the opportunities to do what I love that I was already good at to create my purpose. Right. And that's, that's how all those things kind of, kind of moved into uh, the direction that I'm going in today. 
Right. And, let, and let's let's talk about the direction for a minute. Uh, many may not know or know that you've moved to St. Thomas. And, and, yeah. uh, so let's talk about that transition. The goal and the motivation that was taking a hold of you in Virginia, you, did you look out and say, these guys, I see something here. I'm going to step into this role because I see this is going to take me further? Or is it just... Uh, well, let me do this now to be better, to get stronger, and then go back and then bring a new me to where I was at before. Uh, it, interestingly, it was neither. Um, okay. okay. This, this transition was bred out of need and adversity. Uh, okay. I, had, I had always seen myself as someone who was going to stay in, in the Bristol area and give back and, you know, make change and make history. And like so many of us, I ran into glass ceilings. I ran into opposition, not that we can't overcome them. I've done a lot of great things, but I got to a place and the pandemic really helped solidify that perspective where I got to a place where the first time ever, I felt as though I had done everything that I could possibly do and given everything that I possibly could give to the Tri-Cities. And I, I, I say that because the opportunities were no longer presenting themselves. And the ones that I tried to make did not work out either. And I found myself in a place where I had lost everything. I was living out of my vehicle, trying to make ends meet, just trying to keep my bills paid, um, you know, and literally, uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, just wasting away. And this my mom, my mother called me and we had a long conversation about where i was and the struggle and and it was very 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 vulnerable very transparent and you know she offered uh me to come down she'd been in the saint thomas area u.s virgin islands for about eight years and i knew that was god because that conversation had never been an option it had never been on the table for me to move down here and when you know and she's it was with the confidence that she said that she made the offer rather is where I knew that this was the move that I needed to make if I was going to take the next step, but also if I was going to survive where I was. Uh, I was in a very bad place on, on multiple levels. And if I didn't make a drastic change, you know, there's no telling how much deeper and darker it would have went. So yeah. to answer your question, yeah, the, the, the move here was definitely, um, bred out of pure necessity to to make a change before I, I didn't make it. Right. So you may not notice it. The, we first talked about the vision. Mm -hmm. The vision was everything we mentioned from the beginning, starting off, and everything that came to fruition. Then we talked about the nightmare. The nightmare was thinking that in this place that I was born, well, not born in, but raised in and in this place I felt though I had so many connections and different things it indirectly became a nightmare yes so I was not able to chase the dream because the nightmare was taking a hold of me so then I got a call that calling indirectly through your from your mom through God yeah brought you to where you are now so that you can chase the dream yeah that, that's, that's that correct that's correct you know we talk about manifestation and people yeah use it in multiple contexts, but you can, uh, and again, we talk about energy, universe, all that, all that stuff is real. And it, you know, we know that it all plays a factor into the fabric of the human existence. And what, what I was seeing 
through stress and worry and uh, altercation in terms of circumstance was a physical manifestation of those nightmares into my reality. Okay. Uh, and so what had to happen for the reality change was a, a change in not only geographical location, but then a, a secondary change in thought process. Uh, and, and you can't, you cannot change how you're thinking in, in some cases until you change where you are physically. Uh, but you have to be ready to make the, you have to be in a place where the mental and emotional change is already happening. Because if you if you move location, but you haven't changed your mindset, you're going to do the same thing somewhere else. Yes, you had to be I had to be in a place knowing that this move was to benefit the change and the next elevation for that that purpose uh, and that that transition. Yes. And then this other place would would not become your nightmare as well. Correct. Correct. You, you can just carry that nightmare with you as long as you are still stuck there in your mind. Now, now, with us both having psycho psychology degrees, we understand dream interpretation and we understand lucid dreaming. Yes. Now, also with understanding the nightmare, you were able to take a hold of the nightmare and change it to something great. Now, for people who don't know, the lucid dream means that you understand that you're dreaming. So now you're able to control your nightmare. Us having this conversation today the way that we're having this conversation and the interviews you've had before this conversation and the new play shows that you've taken control of the nightmare and now you're living the dream. Would yes. that be correct? Correct, correct. Yes. And it takes, and, and I want to be very candid uh, and very direct about the, the fact that it takes time it's painful. It's scary. Uh, you're 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 going to go through things that you don't want to experience. However, uh, to to Shah's point, you have with the lucid dream concept, you do have the ability to recognize that you can change not only that dream, but then in turn change the reality. Uh, yes, you have to be. You have to have the courage to do both. Yes, definitely the courage to do both. And with that, the dream which still chasing. What does the future look like now? What is what is the future looking like? Where, where we at? We're in 2024 now. Where are you? <laughs> uh, what what I, I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, the, I'm hoping to be doing greater things from a a ministerial point. Um, okay. You know, as, as we have begun to create a a culture of service. I'm hoping to have a greater impact on people doing more service, doing the most good, as I call it, um, and not to have a religious flag associated to it, but just because it's the right thing to do. Uh, I know that may sound counter to, to being a minister, but I also believe, excuse me, believe that the service, as it has been described, comes first. And yes. the belief system comes after. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, those of us who already have that foundational belief system should be doing it because that's what we believe, not because that's what we're supposed to be doing to recruit people or to convert people or any other um, any other motivation, with the exception of we show our love because that is what we are called to do because that's what we believe in. And so what I want to see is more, more service, more help, simply because it's the right thing to do. 
uh, and then we can have the discussion about belief system and faith foundation and you know those directions later on. But we should we sh our singular motivation for helping people is because we are we are here and called to do so. And so I think yeah. that's the major thing that I want to see on a, on a larger scale. Uh, of course, I want to see my books doing well. Uh, I want to have more interviews. I want to be doing more partnerships with, with individuals like yourself and other people that I've had to greater uh, increase the impact that we have on the world. That's what I want to see in 2024. Okay, yes, yeah, so that's definitely take 2024. And we look at, like I said, we look from where you started off to, we look to the middle and then we look to the future. So definitely it's all still set in all the same plans yes you know that, that we that we're talking about and not like I, I like how you said you don't want to make it too based or based around religion and, and uh on that on the half because a lot of times we notice people will stray away like if hey i'm not strictly religious so they will stray away and it, right. the other thing i know is knowing you is not to pull someone and i'm not trying to pull you into a religious understanding i'm trying to pull you into a global understanding religion just so happens to be the grass and everything growing from there is based around religion to let you know we can't forget that god is still working his magic in all of this correct correct and i, I think it we get too wrapped up in the minutia of the, the religious details and I think that's right. why it's, it's imperative that we begin to change the approach uh, when we're talking and dealing with people is, yes, God is still a foundation, but we can still talk about sports. We can still talk about martial arts. We can still sit down and have these uh, very high end intellectual discussions. And it doesn't always have to be, well, God said this and the Jesus said that and the Holy Spirit told me to tell you it, we recognize that those things are real. We recognize that those things are, are facets, but sometimes you have to forego that vernacular in order to reach people. And I exactly. we have to get to a place where me not saying that doesn't mean I believe it any less. It just means that I'm trying to help connect with you. And we can, again, we can get there later. But if I come right out and I'm thumping over the head of the Bible, people get turned off. And I'm a, yeah. and we're called to help people first. Well, then we're already losing that battle. Yes. Because that, that, that transitions, that transitions into myself. Um, listening to your story, uh, listening to everything that on, on your come up, listen to everything that you tried to obtain and you are obtaining. My early childhood was a, we're based in church. We grew up in church. My yeah. grandmother put us in church early. Um, we went to church every Sunday. Now, I didn't pay much attention to what was going on in church. I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. For those who don't know, um, Jersey City, New Jersey is a very distractive city. So, you, you can't find a lot of time to focus on your goals in a city where there's so much distractions. Now, you have people who come from that city. I'll uh, give a, a quick shout out to my cousin, Louis Spears, who is running for the mayor of Jersey City, which oh, man. makes me feel good because I come... Yep, thank you. I come from that city, so it's good to see a family member who has came through the diversity and who has reached the peak but he can actually try to reach for the highest office in that city. So as I maneuvered through church, I fell out of the church, you know, because I, it really wasn't my path. I felt, didn't feel it was my path. I was just a child. Right. So I dropped back out into the streets. Um, the streets took a hold of me 
early, you know. Uh, I remember like, when, when we met. Uh, yes. We were, we were both hoodlums when we met. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so early on, I mean, the streets took a hold of me. I mean, uh, eight years old, I was running, uh, about eight years old, I was still uh, living, I was living on Dwight Street. That's in Jersey City, for those who don't know. Um, uh, jumping on dirty mattresses, um, getting on milk crates, sliding down, sliding down the back of the school where they used to use their deliveries. They had a thing you could slide down, we'll sl- get milk crates, we'll slide down those. Um, breaking windows, breaking into schools when the school wasn't open. Uh, running around, I, I could I can hear the siren right now as I'm running through the school hallways to let you know that the school was broken into. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, all, yeah, yes. yeah, that's, all, that's all of the bad, all of the bad stuff. Um, uh, by ten years old, I'm giving y'all a quick rundown. Um, if, if you if you guys don't mind, by ten years old, I was uh, living on uh, Virginia Avenue in Jersey City as well. And by 10 years old, I started to see a lot of what life shouldn't show a child at 10 years old from, you know, bullets, bullets coming through stop signs right over my head to me, myself, actually jumping other children and uh, seeing children being jumped um, in my vicinity, stabbed, uh, seeing people shot, seeing family members, you know, hit upside the head and, uh, you know, blood right in front of me, gore, just a nightmare, a living nightmare that I lived all the way, you know, all the way up till 15 years old. Um, 15 years old, I was actually a part of, we didn't call ourselves a game. I was actually, we called ourselves a crew. So I was actually in a crew, same thing still going on. We still bringing detriment to people's lives. You know, we're still hunting people. We're still plotting on people. Um, we played the game called the knockout game. You guys probably heard about that. Uh, <laughs> so it's just uh, the upbringing was real terrible and by 16 years old I started to have a revelation I knew that the stuff I was doing was not for me and I looked at the people that I was hanging with as people who were holding me down like they were holding me down They they were not pushing me anywhere I was being held down now guys you have to understand at 16 years old Many people don't have a revelation. Many that's, people don't have a revelation. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say that's just that's just amazing that to have that at that age. Like just to your point, uh, you know, I know when I was sixteen, um, it, nothing like that occurred. Um, th- there were people in my life that were trying to keep me on the right path. Of course, again, being being walking to the sound of my own drum or whatnot. You know, you're not gonna tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me, kind of thing. So, right. uh, I definitely want to take a moment and just tip my hat to you to, to be able to have that that revelation at that age. Thank you, thank you. Yes, because I, I what I what I noticed. Well, the thing is, um, I don't want to I don't want to say it's different from how we grow up in the hood. You grow up fast. Many people may hear that, but it's actually true. Yes. So I was probably actually a teenager at 11 years old. You know, um, so at 11 years old, I was probably already 16. If, you, if you're looking at the dynamic, I already experienced enough for a 16 year old to experience at that time. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen death. I've seen uh, child molestation. I've seen um, beatings. I've seen people go through hard times. I've seen drugs. You know, I've seen the church, been in the church, went to church many a times. So I've seen so many different things. And at a certain point, and I was very close to my grandfather. Um, 
I've always loved to talk to elderly people. And me and my grandfather had used to talk all the time. And I believe being an old soul at the time and him talking to me all the time is the reason why I probably had this revelation at 16. My grandfather wasn't doing drugs. My grandfather wasn't in a game. My grandfather had his own house. He was working. He took care of his family. And he did everything that he had to do to become the great person that he was. So at 17, I said, you know what? I'm not even going to be a part of this crew no more. So I started to look for a way out. Hmm. I wasn't in a relationship. I stopped chasing females. I used to chase females all the time. 14, 15, 16 years old. Man, I said, that's not the thing to do. You right. Know, at that age, that's, 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 you know, I mean, what else do you have at that age, really, uh, in terms of you know, some level of personal excitement? I mean, you can't really drive, you know, you can't really get around, you know, uh, you, you have school. So all you have yeah. is the, the social interactions. Yes, yes. And I mean, school, I was terrible. I mean, I, I was in ninth grade. I, I got left back twice in fourth grade. So when I was in ninth grade, I was basically, you know, probably still in the seventh grade level because schools in Jersey City were terrible at not teaching children to advance to a greater level. So when I got in high school, I probably was still on the seventh grade level, being, you know, being left back twice, pushing through and still understanding when in high school, the high school I went to was sort of a joke because everybody spent more time being it was like a fashion contest yeah. who has the newest Jordans, who has the best outfit you know who is the toughest you know sob on the first floor on the second floor you know once again chasing females came into the equation if you're not chasing these amount of girls you're a sucker you're not saying this like you like you mentioned yeah. you know if you're using this type of vernacular you're weak and if you use that type of vernacular where i came from you were definitely getting beat up in the back of the school building and having all of this in my mental state, I'm just started at 17. I started to get like, ah, you know, I'm just done. This can't be life. That's what I said to myself at 17. Without a doubt, this can't be life. This can't be what I was put here to do. And that's that's what I had. I, I, I fought with myself day, day in and day out at 17 years old. And then boom, here comes my mother. Antoine, what do you think about moving to Bristol? I'm like... You know, moms always know. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Bristol, what, what are you talking about? Now, uh, my sister had already moved to Bristol. She was already living in Bristol already. So she had already established herself in Bristol. So I'm like, I don't know. You know, so she's like, okay, what we'll do is we'll take a trip. So July 1995, we take a trip. I'm on the road. I've always loved to travel family and I we always went back and forth down south I've always loved the south that's where I'm at now you know so uh we took trips to, to, to uh, Florida and every time I went there I noticed that my mind would open up mm. new ideas and new visions would start to come to me while I was away from the mess while I was away from you know constantly being on guard constantly having to watch my back these new visions started to come into me. So my mother saying that and then traveling to Bristol, once I got there, you know, I still ask, I'm still asking myself, you know, what the heck is this? You know, I'm looking around, 
you know, we, we, we show up in East Ridge. You know where I'm at. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We show up I, I, in East Ridge and I'm like, this looks somewhat compared to home because for you guys who don't know, East Ridge would be considered a project. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Um, so when I get there, I'm sitting, uh, Robert, who's a good friend of ours, um, he's riding on his bike and I, okay, okay, I already come from the hood, so. Him riding by, looking at me, staring at me. We already know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at him like, you know, who, you know, who the f is this joker? You know, you know, staring. So he was staring at me, not because he was giving me any problems. He had already been alerted by another good friend of ours, Rashard, told everybody that I was coming to Bristol. So yeah. that's the reason why Robert saw me and said, "Hey, you know, Rashard, let me know who you were." Um, and let me know you was coming here. As I sat in front of uh, the building that I came from, I'm listening to Notorious B.I.G. And I'm looking out. I'm seeing, looking at the woods. I'm looking at the driveway. As I come, you know, you come up in the driveway. Yeah. You guys may have not known, but me and Langley know exactly what I'm talking about. When you first come into East Ridge, I'm yeah, looking at the driveway. The <laughs> yeah, up the hill. Yep. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I can do this. I can okay. live here. Yeah. So did, did you find did, did you find that you talked about Jersey being distractive? Yeah. And, and you talked about the things you experienced and, and the the poor quality of the school system. Yeah. Do, do you think looking back now, we know hindsight's twenty twenty, but do you think that the distractions were also opportunities for growth? and for being able to view the world from a different lens? They definitely, they definitely were uh, used to, do, to view the world from a different lens. They definitely did that. You know, I did definitely, because of those distractions, view the world from a different lens. As I just told you, when Robert first uh, rode by on that bike looking at me, I thought, it was a, I thought he was an enemy. You right. Know, for me. I thought, you know, automatically I went to defense mode. You know, sure. who is this? And that that basically preps you for to be defensive, as we know it as street knowledge or yes. being, you know, street smart. That prepared you for that. But so also, how, how I didn't. You, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, also, I didn't like the fact that I was like that. That that prepared me and, and made me like that because I was someone who never met an enemy. I always met friends. So I've always apologized to Robert. He, he's always said to me, yeah, you was going to kick my butt that day. I, I said, I probably was, but I didn't want to because I wanted to change that way of thinking and change that way of looking at people and, and, and bring a new me to a new place. I didn't want to be like that. So I battled a lot with who I was compared to who I didn't know I was going to become. Right. as things go further because things did definitely change for me living in Bristol. And, and that's unique because I know that, um, you know, you and I didn't really see eye to eye when we were, when we were younger. Um, yes. Yeah. It, was, it was like, I had the California attitude um, yep. and I was aggressive and you had New Jersey attitude and you were aggressive. So I, I know yes. that when we first got around each other, like there was a lot of animosity between us. Uh, yes. Initially. Um, yeah. And, and I was telling friends about that. And it's, it's always unique. Just just a, a quick, quick segue um, is it's unique to see us now as adults and yes. to see the reconnection now, because, you know, we didn't really speak much 
um, and, and we really didn't hang out. Uh, nope. You know, we were we, we definitely. I think it was an alpha male kind of mentality, and it yeah. was like you were like, I don't know who you are, and I'm like, well, I don't know who you are, like, right. you know what I'm saying? And, right. and so it was, it was interesting <laughs> um, that you know we were both kind of battling that internal turmoil of both being like being tough and and being top dog, but also recognizing that we wanted to be better. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and 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 that and, and to to my defense, the things that transpired in Bristol when you first encountered me is the reason why you ran into the attitude that you ran into. Um, when I first arrived, quick, real quick, I'm gonna go through a, a quick summary. When I first arrived in Bristol, of course, my mind is empty. I don't know no one. I don't, I, I have the slightest idea where I'm at. And as I started to get to know people and I got to know, I was already, what Rashad had done um, and, and giving Rashad a little bit of credit, he had already established who I was in the minds of the Bristol residents, the yeah. children there, you know, you know, so people already knew me, but I didn't know them. Mm -hmm. And as things went on, of course, I ran, I, I got into a relationship in 1996 and in 96, I was cheated on to, to give you guys, this, this goes into where I'm at today. I was cheated on in 1996 in the worst way. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail to relive that situation, but it was, I was cheated on in the worst way that awakened something in me that I didn't think was there mm. it started to awaken trust issues and how I started to look at females and how I started to look at people I was a very trustworthy you know trusting person and people until that moment um, so by 97 uh, once again I was in a relationship that relationship came to an end and then once that relationship came to an end many of the people of Bristol started to turn against me. Um, oh, from, from death threats to, you know, people wanting to beat me up just because of who I was, you know. Um, and by 98, this became really bad. You know, once again, getting death threats, people talking about causing me harm as I walk home, um, but having to watch my back. And now you got to think about it, I'm back in Jersey City again. Yes. So, the people who were against me in Bristol brought that Jersey City mindset back out of me. So by the time you ran into me, what was reawoken was something I didn't want to reawake. And it was there, yeah. you know, as a strong defense mechanism, especially when you're getting death threats. Yeah. You know, especially when someone's talking about causing you harm. You don't know. That's where it comes from when you said, I don't know who this guy is. So I didn't know if you were with me or against me. Yeah, and yeah. in 1998, you was against me. You definitely was against me. So it was no handshakes. It was no conversation. That's just how I looked at it. Apologizing now for this. Certainly, well, and, and I definitely want to apologize because I think you and I—it's it's unique because hearing that, obviously not knowing that, and I do want to kind of take a moment and talk briefly about why this is so important that we help young men be able to communicate better. Um, yeah, because I think that even though God has a way of working things out, I think if we had been able to communicate, then there yeah. would have been a, a better relationship earlier on. Uh, yes. Not, because, you know, you were in defense mode and, and I was in defense mode. I was fighting all the time. You know, I, I a lot of different experiences, but very similar, very parallel to what you were experiencing. And so when you and I, when we finally kind of crossed paths, we were both 
in the same kind of battle mentality. Yes. Uh, and so there was very little respect between either of us. And I, I definitely want to apologize for that now because, you know, we, yeah. I didn't do any favors. Even though I didn't know what you were going through, I could have been better about trying to understand who you were instead of walking in and just immediately having a problem with you. Right, exactly. And that, that, that's, that's the thing with me as well. You know, that automatically, I, would, I wouldn't say my thing was automatically a problem. It was an analyzation. That's yeah. more how I was with people. What are you about? What are you going to do? And whatever you plan on doing, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to take it from there. Because yeah. I'm, I'm a very quiet person. Yeah. Uh, people may not know that as much as I've been talking here, but <laughs> I'm very quiet and observant. Yeah. So I observe and, and, more than I... And, and you and I just kind of stared at each other. You know, I think we were doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it was yes, a situation yes. where, like, I, I, I remember um, the hotel and, you know, yeah. you looked at me and I looked at you and no words were exchanged, but it was like that. If you try something, we're going to have a problem. Um, yes. And, and so, you know, we, we certainly we certainly made the wrong first impression on each other. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And uh, I, I remember the day I remember the day that you were talking about. I was with some friends. And I believe a friend of a friend of yours that was there was uh, was actually in our company. Yes. Yes. And 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 from there, that's like a saying. I had already moved back to Jersey by that time. Yeah. Um, so Jersey had reawakened the defense mechanism, mm -hmm. and I became worse by 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 what happened in 2000 and, and bringing you back up to that moment. Yeah. In '98, when I left, I left Bristol to a '99. You know, um, crushed, not knowing where to go. I mean, I, I thought about committing suicide and everything in Bristol. So, like you just said, Bristol became a nightmare for me. So I had to leave. That brought me back into another nightmare, though. It right. brought me back to a place I didn't want to be, which was New Jersey. I didn't want to be back in New Jersey. So many things started to transpire there. Yeah, I tried to find relationships to calm the beast, but I started to find that the women, I, I, for, for, for a quick notice, what happened to me in 96 when I got cheated on, I started going into Yahoo chat and talking to many different women or females. Let me say they were not women. These were girls and uh, some were women at the time, young teenagers. And I was, of course, a teenager at the time. And these conversations were something that built up, like I'm saying, where, we're at, where, we're at, where I'm at today and became the foundation of what I thought was something greater moving into relationships relation talking about relationships became my solace mm. so when I found when I talked about relationships I came calm and I started to, to, to see things differently even though what had happened to me but by 2001 I got in a relationship that relationship went sour um so by 2002 I said you know what I did everything I tried everything f this now became the vicious way of looking at females as well you know, forget what they want, forget who, you know who they are, and forget what they're about. Right. So by by the time you met, by the time you met me and saw me, and that was actually before, you know, you understand, I was in a mindset of being defensive towards females, being defensive towards men. You understand, but still, build still just talking about relationships, but it was still that defense mechanism you ran into. It was still that that person of seeing, okay, I don't know who this guy is. He's not looking like a friendly. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And and like I said, me being who I am now, 
this goes into relationship stuff one on one. I was getting ready to ask if, if fast forwarding was that was was you were finding the solace in talking about relationships. Was that yeah. the the um, epicenter? Yeah, yeah. Was that the epicenter? I mean, that that's that's what um, predicated where you are now in terms of relationship one hundred and one. Uh, and yeah. was it to to take not only your your comfort in having the conversations and the way that they make you feel emotionally, but also being able to share your experience, your knowledge, and and was this was this also a way for you to address your trust? of people was to be able to have right. a conversation on a greater scale. Is that how that transition kind of started to work for you? Yes, that, that, that's basically how it happened. Um, and like I said, I was talking about relationships since 98. From 98 to 2002, I was just, you know, basically giving advice and taking advice. I was against men because I started talking, I was talking to girls all day. So I got to where I was against men because I felt like men caused women to be the way they are because of what all of these girls were telling me was happening to them for five years straight. Right. So I'm like, you know, for five years, you're getting indoctrinated with the women way of looking at things. You know, you're getting toxic femininity and everything spilled into your body. So yeah, I'm like, F men, yeah, they did this to y'all. You know, so I felt like I had to become the, the advocate for women. I felt like I had to be their voice, you know, to talk to men to tell them, this is what you're doing wrong. I don't know you know who Derek Jackson is. I don't think so. Um, he's a guy from YouTube who talked to women about how men are and how men should change who they are to make women happier. I was Derek Jackson on drugs from 98 <laughs> to 2002. <laughs> <laughs> <My> overdrive. <laughs> right, exactly. So I was really pushing. But like I explained, once I found that I was basically speaking for a bad candidate, meaning that the women were doing bad too they were cheating too they were out there you know causing these guys to be that they were i took a step back like wait a minute now y'all need to cut this the hell out because y'all are the ones too who are doing these things and in 2002 i started talking to a lot of a lot of the kids i hung around and started breaking down these different dynamics and breaking down well when you talk to women what do you do when you talk to girls what do you do uh, when you talk to them, you basically have to have a plan or you have to have something that sets in their mind that they're comfortable with. So still having that that five year indoctrination, but still trying to say, but even though they want this, you still want to be yourself. Sure. Now starting to come into the new of saying, don't totally give in to them, but also give in to who you are as well. So yes. from that moment... No, I was just going to say that's just unique because you, you touch on something that uh, I don't think that we talk about enough. And I know that you and I, uh, you know, we had that that uh, that uh, video conference where we talked about who cheats more. And I always think yeah. about that because that was a very unique experience. And I hate that the women couldn't come on for that. But uh, you guys check that out. I know so I can repost that. That's that's uh, yeah. an interesting conversation um, just because what we don't want to do is belittle or be condescending to women. But there, there has yeah. to be a level of awareness and accountability that both parties are perpetuating Correct. The, the culture of the issues that we're seeing in relationships. Correct, definitely. Um, you, there has to definitely be some accountability. If you look on YouTube today, you have the red pill community. Yes. You have the blue pill, you hear the word simp being thrown around. If you look behind me, you the, purple pill, the purple pill perspective. Now, what is that about? 
the purple pill perspective is basically taking this blue pill mentality from 1998 to 2002 i basically tell i'm telling you i was a blue pill guy right the blue pill guys looked at the guy who defends women yeah who tells men hey straighten up you need to do everything that you need to do to make sure that this woman is happy bro you need to make sure that you are the best man you need to be. Forget about your uh, your past. Forget about the women that hurt you. Forget about how scorned you are. Be the best man you got to be, and these women will like you for that. Red Pill Perspective looks at that to say, hey, you guys are still sleeping. Yes. You understand? What are you talking about? I have to check all of my emotions to make sure she's happy. You don't want to do that. So Red Pill is more about men's awareness and men's health and men's uh, idealism about relationships. And the fact that we understand that, not we, but they understand that women are the same as men. They are with this. They're with the mess as well. Yes. They cheat just like men do. They manipulate just like men do. Women are more known to monkey branch. Uh, monkey branching is when they'll have one boyfriend and they'll have a whole bunch of friends in the background that they're still connected with who they had relationships with in order to keep them safe. I used to call it insurance back in 2002. Okay. I used to tell people, be careful because a lot of women have insurance. So basically what they mean is if you ever have an argument with them or you say, well, I, want, I don't need you anyway, they would take it and brush their shoulder off because they got 10 other dudes in the background. That's their state farm. That's their, you know, uh, how you want to say? That's their Geico. Yeah. That's their lizard, you know, smiling and laughing at you like the get the guy the gecko in the commercial. That's everything that they need to feel better about themselves. The purple pill perspective is that blue and red together. Right now, the only reason I called the purple pill perspective was to attach to what's being said and the relationship dynamic today. Now, do I have a straight purple pill perspective? No. My perspective is on many different levels. Sure. You've known me for a long time yeah. to know I don't set my thought process on one direction. It's my, my thought process is like if you look at the bottom of a tree and you see the roots going into the ground, that's my thought process. As and as those... Go ahead. I was going to say, just, just to chime in, is, you know, that's how it should be, right? I mean, you, and I think that's one area where we talk about religion. We can talk about sociology, psychology. Yeah. We can talk about uh, economy, right? In, any of those things. And, and you see that across the board with people. You know, you get in a fixed direction and you refuse to see anything outside of that framework and that tunnel vision. Uh, and yeah. you use up a detriment because you're only exposing. And, and this is one thing that you and I talk about all the time is, you know, people use it with scripture. We call it proof texting. People use it uh, with with their, their political views and, you know, being polarized. Right. But we so often only want to take in information that supports our narrative. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so because that so that's going back, you know, to your initial question. Where did relationship stuff 101 come from? Yes. Um, relationship stuff 101. First, I started writing a book in, in uh, 2006 called The Book. By 2006, I thought I had enough information to deliver to the masses about how I looked at relationships and how I understand relationships based off my experiences. My first, excuse me, I had my first girlfriend at five years old. So from five, and I explained to you, all the way up to 16, I was just chasing. Mm -hmm. That's all I was doing. There was no thought process about relationships. It was it was complex. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. From from 16 to 18, that was a moment of trying to reconnect. Now, as I lived in Bristol, I was pursued by many different females. That caused a level of confidence that I that I started to gain based off the confidence I didn't have. So from 06 and of course that confidence and and that I gained in 95 was quickly broken in 98 you know so by 98 that confidence was gone it was just like I said back to what the heck is going on by 98 to 2002 I started to reconnect once again I started to think that men were the problem and women were actually you know the victims that changed in 2000 that changed in two by 2003 2003 to 2006, I started to go with both. That's what the purple pill perspective will come into perspective too. Men and women, that's blue and red right. coming together. That creates purple, as we all know. So I started to be with both people. Men do this, women do that. We come together and we create this. You understand? So by 06, I said, many people used to tell me, Shy, you need to write a book. So I put the book together. I wrote the book in a year. It took me a year to write the book. Sloppy, you know, no commas here, no periods. I just spoke to the pages. Mm-hmm. That's all I did. Um, you're a writer, so you understand what I'm talking about, but not with the uh, not with the same uh, behavior that I that I put towards that book. You know, I just a complete run on book. That's what it was. <laughs> right, right, right. It just, it just kept going. It was a run on book. So. <laughs> <laughs> by 08 I, I, I met my wife and she was the one who actually said oh this is you know this is not making any sense I don't understand what you're trying to say here and if she doesn't understand no one would understand right which is so, a unique experience just because well at that time you know she's going to be the person who knows you the best right? exactly so she, if she knows you and, and the book doesn't make any sense then there's definitely it needs to be revisited so that's and yes. she, if you took that as constructive criticism and not as a a jab against your intellect. Exactly, exactly. And when she said that, that made me stop promoting the book. And I put the book book for to a side. Now here comes 08. Excuse me. I got something in my eye. 08, I moved back to Johnson City. I moved to Johnson City. We both know what that's at. For yep. you guys that don't know, Johnson City is a tri-city area. It's part of the tri-cities of Bristol. Excuse me, guys. I got something in my eye. Um, Johnson City is one of the tri-cities in the Bristol area. So, 08, I'm back in the Bristol area. Um, but I'm with my girlfriend at the time. She was my girlfriend at the time. So, my thought process of the things that took place 10 years earlier is not inside of me. But I'm still aware because I'm back in that environment. Sure. You know, so, uh, me, her and I, she was in college at the time. Her and I started to build, our relationship started to build. And things started to grow, so the book is on the back burn at this time. Um, we go back up to Jersey. We move back to Jersey in 08. And then about 08, she becomes pregnant with our first daughter. Uh, that takes us here, where I'm at now in 09. The book is still on the back burn of family. Taking care of family, taking care of my girlfriend, taking care of my newborn daughter. 2010, my son is born. The book's still on the back burner. 2012, you know, I'm still taking care of family, doing what I got to do to make sure that my family, you know, structure is built strong. So I decided to go back to school in 2010. 
by 2012, I, I read a book called The Art of Being Human. I'm, I implore you guys to, to look at this book. Excuse me. I implore you guys to, to read that book. The Art of Being Human and the Humanities is what changed and what put me where you see me at today. Oh, with, with, I would not say emotionless, but not using more uh, many emotions with, when I interact with people. So, so I look ask at you. So I'm, I'm finish, you can finish your thought. Sorry, I, I, but I do have a question about that. Okay. Okay. Go uh, ahead. It's, I, so, what was the driver behind your choice to move in a positive direction? So, and and I ask that because, as we know. Again, you and I both have in psychology degrees, people who are hurt, whether maliciously or unintentionally hurt other people, right? Yeah. So, and I know that you had that revelation at 16, Again, huge, huge. So yeah. how, how did you take your collective experience and decide, you know what? I'm not gonna let this turn me into a person with a chip or a person who's bitter. And I'm going to use this to better benefit myself, my community, my family. How, how did you, what made you go in that direction? Um, what, what made me go in that direction, and that's a good question. What made me go in that direction was to look at where I was at before, you know, and to say that I don't want to be that person no more. Um, I don't want to be a person who dislikes people. I never wanted to be that person, and you know, early on, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. when I went to Bristol the first time, I never wanted to be the people from Jersey City. Right. I didn't want to do that. So my driving force was never to be negative, never to be a, a, a gangster again, as, as I told you, I was in a crew, never to hurt women, never to never to cheat because I was cheated on in the worst way. So I didn't want to cheat people. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to disrespect people. I understood what it felt like to be cheated on and those conversations for five years that brought me closer to people and understanding people's emotions and understanding how people were. 2002 to 2008, talking to children, growing with, you know, growing with them, seeing yeah. how they turned out. Many of your friends, the friends we know, James, Robert, Josh, those are, those are basically products of my conversations. You know, how they take care of their children, how they, how they carried themselves when you first uh, met them. That's products of my conversations from early on with them. And, and seeing their growth, that's the reason what, what kept me on a straight path. Because I knew I had the ability to change something in people. Not to change them completely, but to change something in them. When I read The Art of Being Human, yeah, it was over. Every, a lot of things that I thought I knew, I, I found that I didn't know quickly. From the first chapter, I found out a lot that I, I thought I knew, I didn't know. When it came to religion, when it came to relationships, when it came to art, when it came to music, when it came to perception, when it came to reality, it was many different things. Like I always explain to my nephew, my, my nephew, Corey, as we both know, yeah. I always tell him all the time, Corey, women are people. And when I say that, I know he don't like it. And when I say that, it sounds crazy to you guys today. Yeah, they are people. But why are you saying that? Because people tend to look at women as objects. Objects, correct. They yeah. tend to look at women as not human, but just as pleasurable toys. Yes. Uh, they, have fun. That they can control, like you say, control, manipulate, uh, you know, subject uh, and, and, yes. and keep uh, under their, their authority. Yes. Excuse me. Yes. Definitely. That's what 
women will more perceive that. The Art of Being Human, to give you a little bit about the book, basically told us to look at to look at reality as something we created. It is. So we started to talk about labeling. You understand? Now, when it talked about religion, and I look back at, you know, how how religion came about in my life, it attached to labeling too. That book from the beginning, I, I want to warn you guys if you decide to read it, and like someone as yourself, that book will tick you off in the beginning. Yeah. Because it, it attacks religion from the start. Now, me being a person who doesn't take everything I hear, you know, <laughs> into into as a whole, which is what, what you asked me about too, why I'm not such a defensive person, that's because things that I hear, I don't let it change who I am. Sure. I take it as information. It doesn't change me. So even though that book may tell you something about religion in the beginning, you should never let anything change who you are. Correct. You it, just take it. It should yeah. it should help feed your overall macro view of of the world and, and also yeah. the macro view of your particular life. Uh, you know, to your point, I read a book called Pagan Christianity, uh, and that's where a lot of things were were really open to me. And it didn't change my belief system, right? It didn't, like you said, it didn't change my foundation, but it added the epiphanies, all right? And it added yeah. the information that was helping me understand questions that I already had that I couldn't find yeah. answers to. Uh, and, and so it, it took, it takes study, guys. And as we, that's what, even though we're just having a conversation, we're learning and, and we're looking forward to you all who are gonna be watching this later, realize that at the, at the foundation, we're talking about being able to take information uh, and and or take data rather and turn it into information uh, and, and yes. how you use it that determines yes. what you're going to do. Yes, exactly. And then to not that let to not let that information change your structure. Let Correct. it change your let you let it change your thoughts. Let it let it build and help you grow as a person. But don't let it change who you are. Correct. And that's what the, that's basically what that book that book tested tested you from the beginning because the reason I believe that book started with religion is because we all start with religion. Our conversation started with both of us starting with religion. Yes. So it already knows that from the beginning, let's start here. Then well, it goes into music. Right. Then well, it goes into art. Yes. Yeah, it's then a psychological it into, thing. Yes, exactly. Then it I mean, you and I both know. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I don't mean to cut you down. Then it went into socialism. You understand? Then it went into who you are based off everything you just read. And believe me, guys, if you don't read that book and go like this, <laughs> you <laughs> you have not got the best uh, yeah. you know, option of that book. I got the book right now in my car. I, I look at that book all the time. I've probably read it three times. You know, it, it changed who I am. And like I was saying, 2012, um, when I looked at that book, it made me go back to the book I wrote. So here goes my thoughts on relationships. That changed to my thoughts because I realized in the first book, I was just trying to give you guys what I was thinking about. And I really wasn't helping the masses. I was just talking. Yeah. Now I, I completely understand by 2012 how to structure excuse me, my wordplay and the structure of my vernacular to help upbuild and uplift in a different way, let's start to write my thoughts on relationships. But for some reason, 
I started to get, you know, like, no, this is still not what I want to say. This still doesn't feel right. So I stopped writing my thoughts. I put it on the back burner. 2014, I have another daughter. 2015, another daughter. 2016, another son. So, there, you know, the book is on the back burner for a little while. Um, and then by 2018, I have another son. And in 2018, I've already took it away from 2012. I've talked a lot. And that's, you know, that some time has passed. And I've grown very to a very strong point where I understand that this is all. Everything that we do, everything that connects us, everything that helps us grow, Everything that builds us is all based off relationships. Right. Relationship Everything. With yourself, relationship with others, relationship with your environment, right? Yes. With your belief system. Uh, yeah, yes. That's, that's it. And here, and thus the birth of Relationship Stuff 101. Basically, when I say Relationship Stuff 101, that may make some people say, is he thinking that I'm an idiot? Because when you say anything 101, that's it in dummy form. Right. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, you know, that's what we equate to, you know, 101 is the, the rudimentary uh, part portion of the learning. Right. Yes, I mean, that's, yes. that's, that's the best, the two plus two part. Uh, yes. you know, but, but it's, it's, it, it behooves us to start there, obviously, because no matter what, you know, no matter what you've been through, uh, you, you change that viewpoint based on right like you talked about new information and yes. new information right so you sometimes have to go back and swap some bricks out of your foundation exactly uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let you keep talking i'm, I'm doing i'm doing something uh excuse me for a minute yeah yeah exactly um excuse me for a minute guys my cell phone is having some issues So while you're working, I want be, be thinking about. Uh, I'm gonna pose a question to you. Okay. What, what advice would you give now, as someone as someone who has watched your journey and watched your growth and watched your your elevation, your maturity? And not only am I fascinated, but I, I applaud and I admire everything that you have become based on what you have been. What advice? Going back to something you said about changing your vernacular and not just talking. What advice do you give someone? who may have a knack or a natural proclivity to be able to help others, what would you, what advice would you give someone on how to turn your speech from simply your opinion into something that people can actually utilize going forward in their own personal life? Okay. Before I answer that question, guys, my cell phone is actually going dead. I'm going to rejoin the meeting from my laptop. And hopefully I can get that. I think we had the audio going. I think I, I, know was, I could hear both both of them. Okay, so I'm going to leave the meeting and rejoin real quick. So it's going to be like a, a quick little flip flip right there. <laughs> right. No, please please stay tuned while we go to intermission, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. <laughs> Hope you guys are enjoying this and hope you guys are 
learning some new nuggets and, and really getting some valuable information. Again, he and I have known each other for a very long time. And, you know, we've definitely grown separately, but I think you see a lot of commonality between our lives in terms of having to leave and come back or having to leave and change our geographical location, having to change our mindset, experiences shaping the way that we think, but not only letting the experience move us into different frames of thinking and different ways that we assimilate information. So again, guys, I see you getting ready to log back in. I hope you all are enjoying this and I hope you guys will join us again. He and I have worked together on several projects, Relationship 101. We've done some poetry nights. We've done several things. I'm just a fan of the person that he's become. I'm a fan of the things that he's trying to do. Uh, and I'm definitely uh, a fan of listening to his perspective and listening to the knowledge that he has gained over time. Um, because as you guys have seen, he's been able to do that at a much younger age than myself. Uh, he's been able to have revelation at a much younger age than myself. So this is also an opportunity to learn about someone who made a change much earlier than I was able to make that change. And our, our goal here is to hopefully encourage you guys to be looking at yourselves and making that change even earlier than he did, earlier than I did. Um, because the, the earlier that you start to recognize the differences uh, in yourself and the things that you want to change for the betterment of yourself and your community, the longer you can have an impact on yourself and on others and on the community that you serve or communities that you will serve. Uh, so guys, I, again, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we're waiting on him to reconnect. Uh, and I can't wait to finish our conversation so we can learn more about uh, his advice for you all about how to turn just your regular conversation into something fruitful, into something that someone can take away and utilize. You know, we talk about legacy and legacy is the impact and the impression that you leave on someone once you are out of their company. So the idea that uh, you want to always leave not only with something for yourself, but leave something with someone else that they can take back and apply to their their lives and to the people that they surround themselves with, right? Because your sphere of influence is also, it also includes you. So you are going to be an influencer as much as you are going to be influenced by uh, those around you. going on guys excuse me guys we had a little technical difficulties in that podcast and i wanted to come bring this part of the segment to you guys to apologize for the technical difficulties next weekend we're going to continue that conversation it was a really good conversation hopefully you guys enjoyed it um definitely something different we actually did two different if you guys recognize he interviewed me and i interviewed him so that was definitely a great way to go back and forth and to go tit for tat during that conversation. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We touched on a lot of different things that I believe a lot of people can be inspired by, motivated by, and actually find some type of solace or some type of information inside of this podcast. So hopefully we brought that to you guys today. Um, thank you guys for checking out the Relationship Stuff 101 podcast here on this July 18, 2021. 
I've been your host, Shahir Henderson. And as I always close out, guys, with my understanding compared with your understanding, we can create a greater understanding. Thank you once again for checking out the podcast. Guys, share this podcast. Let's try to get to at least 100 monthly listeners and at least 1,000 monthly listeners by the end of the year. So, yes, guys, share, share, share. That's all I I, I can say is, you know, share because this is a very great conversation. And someone probably would definitely benefit from the things that were said. If you know somebody who can benefit from the things that were said today, you know, share this with them. You know, see what they think about it and see if it actually caused, you know, a shift in their life. If it caused some type of directional change in how they look at life. So, or it may have caused a directional change in how you look at life or a shift in how you look at life as well. So, thank you guys again for listening. And I'm going to catch you in the next podcast.